Score, the podcast. The only show taking you inside the studios of the world's most celebrated composers and musical storytellers. Presented by Spitfire Audio. Woo-wee! I'm Kenny Holmes. Robert Kraft. Robert Kraft checking in. Score the podcast. We're just rolling. We're rolling. Presented by Spitfire Audio. Another week of a double-headed guest. It's two Don't different say people. say that about Carol. That is so <laughs> impolite and really say, kind of... Say hello to composer Carol. Hey, hi, Carol. Kenny, hi, Robert. <laughs> she is single-headed, but she does have so many skills that it's easy to make that mistake. <laughs> we have a true. cool show coming up. Two of my absolute favorite, not only composers, just musicians. I yeah. mean, first of all, our our guest, Mark, I've been working... Mark Isham, that is. Been working with for, I'm going to say, between eight and 9,000 years, but one of my first movie scores that I worked on at Fox, he just taught me so much doing uh, incredible work. And one of my new favorites, Isabel Waller-Bridge, who I've just finished two seasons of The Split. Mm. Mm. She has a new fan right here in Southern California. I love her. She's amazing. Yeah, it's, she's, she's definitely jumped on the scene and, you know, obviously she did uh, Emma, and she works on the show Fleabag that her sister created, and they teamed up together to really do something cool there. Uh, Fleabag's just been killing it over the last few seasons. And um, so, yeah, we have two guests. Um, so we're going to get to those guests in just a bit. But as always, at first, we want to take a second to thank our sponsor, Spitfire Audio, maker of orchestral sample libraries for film composers, whether you're just starting out or a seasoned professional. Spitfire has so many sounds you will love. Yeah, they sure do. And you know that every month they release a new library in their free lab series, and you can get an entire orchestra for free in the form of their BBC Symphony Orchestra Discover Edition. Yeah, they also just released the Solstice Orchestra, which is Albion Solstice, uh, and it's a bunch of folk instrument library um so it's nice. very like modern and some of the demo cues they have on uh i saw on their facebook page really cool sounds um also today we're gonna play you a cue from another one of their great packages the eric whitaker choir package now this package is a breathtaking emotive choir library curated by grammy winning composer eric whitaker so at the end of the show today we'll play you a demo cue of that but let's get to the most important part the code, the discount code as a score the podcast listener exclusive you exclusive to you three two one. Uh you will save twenty-five percent off your first Spitfire order with the promo code score twenty twenty one. So be sure to use that before it goes away. We don't know when they're ending the promo code, so if you're late on listening to the podcast, rush over to Spitfireaudio.com right now and order a package if you haven't uh purchased one of their projects uh products before and um, save on that discount code. And again, we'll play you that cue at the end of the show today. Uh, I got to tell you guys, I went and saw the movie Cruella and I was so overwhelmed with, I I thought I I went in there thinking, eh, this, you know, let's go back to the theater 
we haven't been to the theater in 18 months or so, and I was expecting a movie, and I thought that movie was great all around. Nicholas Bertel's score was fantastic. Um, big shout out to Susan Jacobs, the music supervisor. There's a ton of great songs in the movie, and they're um, they're. I just thought they were well used. It was there's a lot of like montagey scenes, and Emma Stone just crushes it, of course. Um, but if you have a chance to see it, I know you can watch it on Disney Plus at home too. I think it's like thirty bucks to rent it. But it got us back to the theater, and it was a really enjoyable experience. And I'm glad we saw it in the theater. Also, the art direction and the costumes and stuff were fantastic. Um, so I can't recommend that movie enough. And hopefully, it gets a little love uh, for award season because I thought. All around, it was it was great. And also, um, there's an entitled cue that Nicholas Bertel teamed up with Florence and the Machine on, which was really cool. It was the Rolla DeVille song. Have you seen that movie yet, Robert? Carol? I haven't seen it. Um, that's all very interesting. Of course, Nick Bertel, a previous guest and a f- on Score of the Podcast and a fabulous friend of all of ours. And I wonder if Isabella Summers, who's in Florence and the Machine participated in the creation of that cue at the end or that song i would imagine she would and she uh, actually worked with mark isham uh on the little fires everywhere um so we That's can talk right. to mark about that um so yeah a little interesting tie in there um cool. you just went to austin right austin texas. i was in austin texas where they are in the middle of what can be described as an austin summer Ooh. uh so I've been to a couple of those in the past, but Austin is just so cool. And Were you wearing a Score the Podcast tank top out there? Just I actually I was I went to Walmart in a uh, speedo and a pair of flip flops, <laughs> and um, so they could see my Score the Podcast tattoo, which is nice. kind of a tramp stamp. Um, but I fit <laughs> right in at the Walmart's. So uh, other than that. And boy, the f- score of the podcast fans in Austin, you know, you, I land just kind of being, <laughs> oh, no. and there they were, you know, that scene of the Beatles when they first land at yeah, Idlewild Airport and people are pressed to the, that's what it's like to, when you're a, a host or a co-host. Um, you just get used to the paparazzi and the crowd. So we thank everybody in the audience. And I think that it's a perfect tip off for our show coming up. That, uh, you know, these fans get a chance to listen to a new episode. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm glad you had a good time and you made it back safely. And uh, yep. so here we go. I think um, we've got two guests, so let's get to it. Uh, our first guest, uh, she is a composer of Emma Fleabag. Um, I know she might have a, a new single uh, solo album that she's working on as well. So let's get to it. Our interview with Isabel Waller-Bridge. And we're ready to rock with our stellar, beautiful, talented guest du jour, Isabel Waller-Bridge. Can we get a little shout-out, a little applause? (laughs) Hi, everyone. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. (laughs) And so exciting. I, um, as I, as I said, when we spoke earlier, you know, I did a deep dive on every eighth note you have ever composed and <laughs> found such an enormous variety, Vita and 
Virginia, which was somehow you decided kind of surprisingly, because that would be a good opportunity for an orchestral score to go electronic. And I've heard Emma, which is just beautiful. Chef's kiss, as they say. Oh, it's just so well bespoke to the narrative and the dialogue. What, here's a dumb question. Do you decide going in, this is what it's going to be? Do you let the picture speak to you to say, I have a feel for this? It's a lot to do with actually the director's vision, really. That's where kind of I'll start by kind by, you know, a kind of initial conversation. And actually both those two examples, Vita and Virginia and Emma, both directors had a really clear vision for the sound of the score. And um, although Chanya didn't know that it, we would end up having something electronic, but we definitely knew that it wouldn't be orchestral and that and we definitely knew there wouldn't be a piano in it. She had completely said that there shouldn't be anything in the instrumentation that feels too period, too kind of traditional. So so that that was the jumping off point for that score. And then just through lots of other conversations around Virginia Woolf and Vita Zackville West and what they represented in their time, then it then we sort of got to a place of a more unusual score that sort of um was meant to kind of represent and express their their energy rather than the sort of rather than the period. But Emma was a completely different um completely different approach because Autumn again had a really clear idea for what she wanted and her references were really orchestral and really classical. So it was Haydn and Mozart and Prokofiev, but Peter and the Wolf. So I definitely knew that that, I already knew that that template was going to be orchestral and, and very bright um, and not have any of the kind of dark sounds. Definitely no electronics. We were going to use <laughs> instruments from the period as well. We were going to have a pianoforte. Um, and we sort of kind of thought around the idea of gut strings to get that sort of really Baroque sound when we wanted it. But then... But that didn't, you know, there was a lot of kind of trial and error with sort of finding, you know, we, in terms of the piano sound, we did actually end up using a, a modern classical grand piano just because the sound for the film works better. You know, it was brighter, it was more sort of romantic, which worked. And so sometimes we kind of cheated a little bit, but that's the way in. It's talking to the directors and then and then it's just watching the, picture and seeing sort of it's about really I think what will look good you know when you hear it what will kind of feel that's got you know that what will have the right energy and um, that's probably the beginning of the process for me. What, what is your musical background um, and do you have like a comfort zone is was Emma your wheelhouse is there something that makes you uncomfortable and if so do you enjoy that feeling or would you rather stick to what you're comfortable with i feel like at the beginning of every project i kind of go into it thinking great this is the thing i feel most comfortable with and then i'm immediately really uncomfortable and i feel like it's going to be the one (laughs) thing that ends me forever and i don't know what i'm doing so both of it so with beach and virginia i really found that kind of electronic um sound because i hadn't really made any music like that before um so that was a a real journey i think 
orchestral music probably is a bit more my wheelhouse because I studied music at you know university and did a postgrad in it and did a lot of orchestration for um, composers when I was assisting them when I was younger. And so I, I really understand, I know my way around an orchestra. That is absolutely fine. I can, I know how instruments are going to sound. I don't have to kind of reference too many other things to, to kind of know what the result is going to be. Um, you know, if I'm writing for an oboe, I know, I know how that, I know why I'm writing for the oboe. Um, but, yeah, and then I don't know, you know, sometimes with the more like when I, you know, with metal, when I've just like dabbled in a bit of rock, I don't know, I never really feel like I know what I'm doing. Honestly, I really don't. And then you just think, you know, is that a, is that a sound that, you know, I'm attracted to? Do I like it? Go a bit further with it and see. Jazz is probably not my area to be. That's that is really, one thing that. All, all that is so <laughs> interesting. And so, and kind of the final sentence, jazz is not my area. It's kind of perfect in a way. It would have frightened me if you said, and by the way, I swing like a, like Count Basie. And Absolutely no way. Say, you're really scary how much you can do. <laughs> I have so many questions. It's, it's a little weird on the electronics. Did you have that moment where you went down to Denmark Street and bought all this gear and started to look at manuals? Did you have someone come in or somewhere in between? Because I've been around composers who have made that transition, and there's always this, you know, in, in L.A., you'd go to the Guitar Center and start buying synthesizers and trying to figure out what to do. Uh Plug this in here, these yeah. chords, all those patches. Because it sounds so organic, like you've been doing it for a long time. Plugging things in, plugging things in is, uh, that does really scare me. I don't have a good relationship with plugging <laughs> in, um, <laughs> plugging things in. Whether it's anything on my, in my studio, like I'm looking at now, I have a, a whole pedal board. But that, plugging that mm. in just panicked me and i love like playing with them and i can sort of but just turning them on and plugging them in connecting them scares me so i did have some help but i also i hope so when i <laughs> yeah no i have i have help now plugging everything in um but when i was starting down the electronic route i did really have to quite quickly familiarize myself with ableton um because i knew that i that a lot of the sounds were going to come from there i was um you know the my logic sounds the sort of orchestral sounds they that the kind of the way it was working in logic wasn't very free um mm. and i i was working with a programmer who could show me ableton quite quickly actually and we were sort of doing that and then i was able to kind of start using them both together logic and ableton and that really because also what was good about that because i don't know ableton very well it made me a lot less sort of self-conscious and also I made loads of mistakes which actually happened to be kind of interesting things that ended up and you can sort of get away with it a bit more sometimes in electronic music you know if there's like a hiss or a a weird sort of thing reverses itself then you know it can become something you're you like use. yeah that, I was going for this abstract hissing yeah. sound and now you're a genius where if yeah, the orchestra basically. screws up people can notice it yeah yeah exactly you I was actually curious also just in terms of Emma, and then we can certainly move on to all the other things, but Emma is a very interesting score to me because contemporary scores, sort of the, I call it the Thomas Newman vibe, where a composer backs 
away sort of to the back row and does this emotional color and doesn't really score moments often occasionally, but it's more here's the vibe of the scene and here's the kind of embrace musically of emotionally where you may want to consider I'm not going to manipulate you. You know, that's what directors want now. They want the audience to find it. Emma is beautifully tailored like the like the outfits and like the framing. It's so beautiful. It and a great reminder of a sort of movie score that you don't hear. Was that your idea to really shape it around the action and dialogue? It wasn't, um, it was sort of something that evolved, but Autumn in those kind of really early conversations, she directed the movie and she talked a lot about the the old fashioned movie scores um, and Mm. silent movies and how um, she kind of, she was imagining that the orchestra might be playing along live to the action, to Emma, to the film, and chasing the action. And so then she started talking about this kind of Bugs Bunny effect when, you know, when everything, every action has a reaction from the music. And that became something that she really, really wanted to, it was almost like scoring an animation or something in that way, you know, definitely had an old movie sort of It's a little comedic at times. Yeah, oh, definitely. Every eyebrow raise, every look. I mean, it scored completely within an inch of its of its life, and that um, <laughs> that to give it a kind of. I mean, it was exactly in that way, as you say, like the costume, the level of detail that she had put into all the costume and, and everything. The same, she wanted the same from the music, and I think, yeah, I hope you it, nailed it. I hope it worked. Oh, good. Oh, <laughs> I'm always. You- Nailed I'm it. always curious about uh, when movies are redone and you come in, I- any artist comes in and there's there's an existing version of this film. Do you watch it? Do you completely stay away? How do you, do you channel it at all? Is it on your radar or do you just completely put it in a box and lock it away and say, this doesn't exist? Because obviously you don't, you're not going for the same vision, but you got it. Is there any curiosity there? Oh, well... Yes and no. I think the the tricky thing with Emma is that Emma, the the one that was made in the nineties, I remember it really vividly, and I and I watched it and I loved it. And you know, <laughs> Rachel Portman did the score and then won the Oscar for it. And you know, it's like not a film that you can ignore, really, or a yeah, score just that you'd ever to want be to ignore. An iconic score, yeah, yeah, exactly. And it's such a beautiful score. But but fortunately, this was such a different approach. I mean, you know mm. that 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 um it, they really feel like two completely different worlds and so i was able so there was no risk of kind of having you know thinking oh you know is this is this a, is this you, you, oh, thinking that you know will it work as well as it did you know when rachel portman scored it because they're because they were completely different um sort of energies and, and tapestries i think um melodic still i think but but it did. It did absolutely give. Of course, when certainly when Autumn first asked me to come in, the first thing I thought was, "Oh my God, no, absolutely no way!" Rachel Portman wrote that. Score. <laughs> I'd never want to kind of 
do another Emma. So I was really relieved that it was going to be a completely different, you know, it was going to be a comedy and a, you, and a much. You did an unbelievable job, and it just makes me think what will happen when George Lucas calls you and asks you to do the rescore Star Wars new version. You know, you, you only have John Williams to compete with. Can you imagine? Uh, but you, oh, God, it'll happen, too. They'll remake it. They'll do the animated version completely of the movie. But tell us about, you have coming up, what is Munich? Because that's the name of another movie that I really love. So are you now the the queen of taking great movies and no. doing the new version? It's no, not the Steven I... Spielberg Munich, is it? No, 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 definitely not. It's um, its full title is Munich 38. And um, oh. it's based on a novel Ooh. of the same title. And... Uh, and yeah, I'm about Jesse Owens, Robert Harris. See, yeah, is the author. Jesse Owens in 38. Was it uh, if this is really interrupting you and really not completely focused conversation? Jesse Owens <laughs> won the track and field event, a black American upsetting Hitler in 1938 at the Olympics in Munich. Is that what this is about? No. No, this, okay. that's not what this is about. That sounds good, though. Um, I'm going to check that out. <laughs> Robert, let's, let's table that for another discussion. <laughs> next, next episode. Please continue. No, this is, this is different. This is, um, this is, this is about the, the short amount of time that it was that Chamberlain and Hitler came to an agreement um about the war and then it's and then so it's really just around those few days and it's uh and it's about um the two young men really a, a british uh man and a german man and they it's about their relationship they've grown up together they went to oxford together and now they're both fighting for their own cause and then and so it's about kind of nationalism and youth and and it's it's so wonderful i'm really enjoying it and it's also it's interesting what you were saying earlier because about the modern way of scoring and and for instance the emma way of scoring because actually the emma way of scoring is not really i would say my wheelhouse um i was very intimidated about the amount of music and and sort of how classical it is where and so now munich actually feels much more comfortable place for me because it's moodier it's darker which is sort of where i feel more at home and um there is mm, so it's like a prequel to war yeah exactly to the second world war um never appeased yeah and it feels and it feels again like completely unconventional what we've done with the score which is always which is always a really attractive you know thing for me definitely when i'm going into Isn't a project. That exciting yeah is always uh, we we like to t talk a lot a little bit about people's backstories on the show um just to kind of get a vibe of of your creative background obviously there's something in the water uh growing up because you and your sister both are just have exploded onto the scene and and are absolutely crushing it um but were, were you were you both musical? Did you guys split off um, as kids? Like, what what was the what were you like 
together growing up? Were you collaborative at that point as well? Or when did you start to connect like that creatively? I think we, I mean, we were always really collaborative. We grew up in a really kind of noisy household. Um, there were always people around. There were always people who, who were willing to listen to whatever we sort of, you know, created, whether it was sort of like I'd written a poem or a song or, I mean, and when we were younger, we made radio plays together with my brother as well. We would just, huh. you know, um, take some like gravel into a cupboard and make all the foley sounds and, and write a play and then sort of record it onto a tape. So it was really from, and then as we got older and we became more kind of involved in the thing, you know, I became much more involved in, in music and I was on a music scholarship. So I was really doing it the whole time when I was kind of 11, 12 already then. Um, you know, we were, we were always doing, we were, I was always playing the piano that we would always have, you know, a house, as I said, that full of people, big sing songs. And, you know, Phoebe would write some lyrics or something. Yeah. And we, and we would write some songs and then she did learn the saxophone briefly, <laughs> something, but that didn't last. And then both of us, and then I did think about acting for a little bit. I went to the American Academy of Dramatic Arts. We went together and, um, and and we did that we sort of did the summer school there when we were 17 18 but actually that? that's in new york in in manhattan um mm -hmm. but i i was really even when i was there actually i was still kind of much more interested in the musical side of things i wasn't really i wasn't really that i a i wasn't good <laughs> at the straight play stuff um but i do like performing so it was kind of it it made me kind of really realize that just being a different person i don't know just like acting i can't no definitely so that have luckily you performed your scores have you have, have there been isabel waller bridge concerts and there will there be been. more that we can go to yes yeah i hope so it's quite um i'm really looking forward to next year actually because um well in london there's i have a i'll have a, a residency on the south bank here and um so uh -huh. i'll be performing my album then which will be great and the royal philharmonic um are performing my a, a new piece at the royal festival hall i won't be in that though i'll just be on the sidelines you know sweaty sure. <laughs> yeah um and yeah and then and then when the album kind of is really really finished then i'll tour it so is this a solo uh, album that you're doing yeah i have signed a record deal at please the end tell of us last, more you know. yes tell us more because this is <laughs> well, doo -doo 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 breaking news. <laughs> I really amazingly, well, it's, I had always kind of been writing my own music, you know, away from scores. Uh, and I wrote an album probably about 10, no, maybe seven years ago. But it was a really, um, I found it actually a really traumatic process. And I ended up, I just binned the whole thing. I could, it was something to do with, by the time I finished it, I feel like I'd evolved. Um, you know, past it. And that, but it was really good to have had that experience. And then about middle of, no, two years ago now, I get, you know, last year is so strange. But anyway, um, I signed a record deal. And so this really, I, I'm thinking of it as my first album. And um, I've released a couple of pieces of music, really small ones, just a solo piano piece and a kind of ambient piece. But now I'm I'm building now towards an album and I've, and there's a concept and I'm really excited about it. And it has been something, I think if I tried to do this, like I sort of did, 
ages ago i wouldn't have, it wouldn't have had all the kind of i needed more confidence i think and now i feel like it's something i'm sort of ready to do if if you were to say your music was going to be in a playlist with a similar type of sound artists what 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 vibe is your solo album going to be it's so, well it's the playlist that it gets kind of thrown onto the bits and pieces it's a really it's it's kind of hard to <laughs> place it but i play the piano in it there's other instruments but so it gets um it gets put on with kind of johan johansson and and max richter hmm. Um, quite a bit, and then with the ambient stuff, it ends up on things with John Hopkins. I don't know if you know um, his electronic music, and awesome. and Beach in Virginia really got me into the sort of electronics, and so and that has so that's grown, and there'll be, but there'll be, um, and there's a little bit of vocal stuff on there as well. So we'll see. You also asked you. Oh, go ahead. I just, but Kenny, I want you to finish that question because I. It, we probably have the same one, but it's an interesting pair of composers you've mentioned because they've done something that I hope you will do, which is they have these kind of, like Max has a career composing films, but he also has a career as a recording artist. And they're, they complement each other. They're interesting. Johan, wonderful composer, of course, but also his music stands alone. And you may be a pop star uh, alongside your composing star, and that would be really cool. I think it would be you. it would be wonderful. It would be wonderful <laughs> if that if if because I do think there's something very. It's always I've never I've never ever really wanted to only be writing film scores ever. So mm. you know I've done so much theatre. Theatre is really where I began, and so I kind of all my kind of experience of of sharing work really came from the theatre and sort of performing in that way, not as an actor, but as a musician and a composer. And and then I've written you for dance pieces and and I'm and so it, it makes a lot of sense to me. And also there's something about the privacy of doing your album, which is really intimidating and really hard that you have such like completely two different brains with the approaches to both of them. We, we glossed over it a little bit, but um, you, you obviously you score Fleabag, um, which stars and is, you know, created by your sister. And I, I find the show so interesting because unlike Emma there, the music is so the, the spotting must be really interesting because there's not a ton of music, but it's used so effectively in the show. And I'm wondering what those spotting sessions are like, and what are you really looking for when you put music in Fleabag? The spotting sessions, the spotting sessions really sort of like take place really as like we're waiting for a bus stop, you know, <laughs> like it's sort of my sister and I just sort of chatting and or drinking tea and then thinking, do you remember that scene? Maybe there should be some, you know, music there. Or so the whole thing is quite unconventional. But then eventually with Harry Bradbeer, you know, who, who directed Fleabag. Um, and Gary Dolner, who's the editor, who is a genius, and actually a lot of the placement of the music and, and the use of it is is you know down to him. He's he's absolutely brilliant, and he he and I were a real team on that because mm. he would we didn't temp any of the we didn't temp the either oh, wow. uh, either se seasons. 
Um, but we definitely, and season one, there was a, you know, there's hardly any music in it apart from that kind of guitar, you know, pop and end credits, which becomes the theme. It has become the theme mm-hmm. of Fleabag. But there's, otherwise there's like a sort of anxious triangle in there and you know that's basically it and i think there's a kind of like moody double bass i think who's sort of like walking around a little bit occasionally in sort of various scenes but that that's it and it's really it was in the second series that we um that we we sort of that the score grew i think we need you to make a an album called the anxious triangle please (laughs) i feel like an anxious triangle good name (laughs) <laughs> do, you, do you find that your conversations with Phoebe uh, would be different than, uh, I mean, obviously you guys are sisters, but would you speak up maybe and say, this isn't working or why don't you try this maybe in a way that you wouldn't with a, another director that you're working with? Do you have a little bit more of a free flowing creative vibe in that sense? Or do you step back and, and let her do her thing and you do your thing? Well, no, we definitely have a, we definitely have a really good um create a kind of understanding of each other from the from the word go you know without even sort of saying anything initially we'll, we have such a shared sense of humor that that it really um that we i know that when i'm watching something i can i will really just know how she's feeling about it it's sort of just one of those things i think when you're related to someone or when you know someone incredibly well it could be a kind of really close friend or something but i think in terms of um a sort of sort of professional creative approach there really isn't any there wasn't much difference in the way that we work together in the way that I work with other people because the process sort of has to be the same I don't know you know or or the process wants to be the same uh, with each with each kind of um, collaborator that I've that I've worked with so maybe it's a little we probably talk less because it's we kind of communicate a lot with our with just facial expressions and you know or like a noise or something so we probably don't have that we don't have to do we definitely don't have to do much of the groundwork you know as soon as you when you start a project a lot of it i find is those initial conversations they're really just to get to know that person to get to know their taste you can be talking around the film before you actually start talking about the music but we've sort of done all of that for kind of yeah you know our, literally our whole life <laughs> Uh, yeah so, um, you spent your so, whole life developing that second hand yeah exactly so there's a lot of conversations have been like you know it'll go you know that and i'll go yeah and she'll get can it and i go yeah <laughs> and then so it's a lot of finishing so, each other's sentences and, she know. must be so proud of you oh we had such what a, you're such doing a i'm sure time. i need yeah, to um the former host our co-host of this show, Robert Kraft, made a tragic error earlier. He's been replaced by the time you see this because he said 1938 Munich, Jesse Owens. And uh, I just want to correct for the record, 1936 Berlin, Jesse Owens. Mm. Please forgive me. Uh, never allow me to offer any <laughs> trivia again. It, that should be a new rule. And well, I hope my replacement has this history together, but I had to look it up. Continue, let's, please. Let's, let's pivot to uh, uh, something funny that I read about, and I don't know if everyone knows this because it wasn't in English, but the song that you wrote, the music that you wrote for Fleabag that had a little bit of hidden meaning to it, I found absolutely hilarious. Kyrie. How did that develop? It's... It, it's almost like your little secret. It's it's funny, but you had to reveal it in an interview for people to know because most of the audience watching the show is is 
English speaking. Um, but where did this idea come from? And and that must have been just hilarious for you guys to work on that in in secret for that. Yeah, it was. Um, it was one late night, I think, in the studio, <laughs> and we were just chatting about the lyrics, and we knew that we wanted them to be the Kyrie and the Christe, um, because we it's Lord have mercy and Christ have mercy, and I have. You know, I actually feel very like, you know, I'm not religious, but I do love those classical pieces of music and I feel quite respectful of those lyrics. And so I don't um, I don't make a habit of going around and sort of like changing things. But um, Phoebe had this idea, which she sort of half said, and then I completely understood it of just what if we just changed a few of the words? Not that they're sort of incredibly explicit. But they do have a kind of double meaning. So <laughs> <laughs> there are words instead of, I think there's one, the one in particular is um, we're coming, I'm coming, he's coming, she's coming. <laughs> it's a sexy it's like, priest. It's, it's, it, yeah, there's sort of little things like that. But I think Harry Bradbeer said once that um, there's like some really foul language in there but it's not at all, it's not that at all it's more kind of you know just if you really if you if you understand latin then um, you'd probably sort of get the joke but <laughs> yes. if, i mean maybe crazy. <laughs> yeah, that hilarious joke. i always love yeah. it i love i always love it when there's when there's maybe like a easter egg or a, a little nugget of something that you put in as the composer sometimes composers will use a an obscure object to create a sound and the audience may have no idea that that was ever done. But do you do stuff like that? Do you oh, do yeah. anything for yourself to kind of say like, I'll always remember that people may not know what I use there, but it, do you have an example of something like that you, that you've done? Well, I, ha I do do it on most, most projects actually, if I can. Um, well, beat in Virginia was Elizabeth Debicki's heartbeat that became the, that set the tempo. And also became, that was where we, we thought, okay, well, I might, you know, start using, it became a kick, um, kick drum. That's so cool. And so that was a lot of fun. I use, on Black Mirror, I tried to um, get the right to use Miley's um, speaking voice, Miley Cyrus's speaking voice um, mm. in the score, but we couldn't actually get the rights for that. <laughs> um, that was a bit complicated. What else have I done? Lots of, I really do try and do it on, on most things. And even if it's, um, you know, the sound of my car, sometimes the indicator in my car, that is a really good sound. I've got woven that into a couple of things. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's kind of, but also I think, because it, it just makes it, a lot of sample libraries and things like that, they're so amazing now. And they, you know, mean that you can really get your demos up to such a, like a high quality. But sometimes I feel like it's really important to just try and, make build yourself a kind of um library of sounds this is what exactly that i did for black mirror actually is i asked um this brilliant guy to go to this junk yeah like junk uh what do you call it, like car boot sale junkyard yep junkyard yeah and pick up a load of things and he has this amazing photo of the of it because and then we were going to sample them to create a library um of sounds and there was everything from like co coins and obvious things that kind of make a sound. But then also there was a squeezy 
cat that lights up that was in there as well it's like just random stuff you know because you can it's and then i really find that that approach as well with instruments is really good so having it's so creative i think that's what i love is how creative you are that way it does harken back to putting gravel in the cabinet and doing your own foley so but it's also extends the idea of what a composer does you're just using the universe of sound whether it's traditional or you're squeezing the squeezy cat to make something and it all works and it's all super creative and um it kind of reinforces my love of composers because people don't understand often they think oh are they the people they usually think they're the people they usually think it's the conductor when you say the composer of a film score. Oh, is that the person that waves their arms in front of the orchestra? <laughs> no, this is this tremendously creative artist who has to use the world of sound. It is. To... Um... Yeah. Sorry, Robert. No, I interrupted you. Go on. No, Sorry. it's just that that's what you do. And to hear about, you know, banging on things and squeezy things, it's... <laughs> And using heartbeats, I, I'm assuming the indicator for our American audience is the turn signal. Yes, yeah, exactly. Yes. So it's the thing that Which I really takes. like. And you remind me of a story of a composer who used the sound of his windshield wiper <laughs> for the tempo right. of a piece that he couldn't get. And he was driving and he heard it and it was in three. And. And he took that sound and that tempo and wrote a cue around it. And you have I to find that. inspiration where you can. Definitely. Definitely. I mean, at the moment in my studio, it's my, the door in my studio does this really, if it basically, there's only one position that it won't, it clicks. And um, I've had various musicians in here to record and it just drives us absolutely insane. So I've now had to sample it and um do something <laughs> with it because it's just i have to turn it into something because otherwise it's just driving me nuts so i think that could be your I alfred hitchcock think... appearance you put that yeah. squeak in every score yeah, somewhere exactly. and your fans <laughs> for years well, but that's what makes you different yeah as a composer is something that everyone else around their house would think god that's so annoying Yours is now appearing in a movie score. And yeah, it'll turn Some up people will never know that, but now you'll know forever that that famous annoying door squeak is <laughs> yeah. the star of your latest score. I think after uh, the anxious triangle, we're going to hear a record from Isabel called the famous annoying door. I mean, yeah. I, and the squeezy cat. I, and the squeezy yeah, cat. cat. Famous <laughs> door and the squeezy cat presented by Isabel. Uh, Isabel, this has been so fun to hang with you. Um, we really oh. appreciate you coming on the show. And. We're very excited for your album upcoming and uh, for Munich 38, which do you have a release date on that yet? Oh, um, I think I'm going to say January next year. Or I think I think it's no, I think it's got released. It's in cinemas sort of uh, at the end of this year. And then it goes, I think, onto Netflix at the beginning of next year. Um, I also look forward. I hope that we can all travel in 21 and 22. I would like to come to London and I'd like to hear your residency and your performances. Yeah. So you must let us know. We can tell all the score listeners around the world and they can, can I play the squeezy cat? on? Oh shoot. (laughs) Come on, man. You gotta be a union. 
You got to be a, a union player. <laughs> I'll join the so union brilliant. for that. <laughs> Isabel, yeah, thank you. Thank you so much. Oh, it's been such a pleasure. Thank, thank you. She's great. She's she's on on her way Love to her. just killing it, and she's the yep. next generation. Um, yeah. That was a lot of fun. Uh, we can't thank her enough for joining the show. And um, we've got plenty more to come. We're going to take a break. And then after the break, Oscar-nominated composer Mark Isham is joining Score the Podcast. Stick around. We will be right back. Hey, it's Matt Schrader here. If you like Score the Podcast, you're going to want to check out More Score, our new Patreon show for Score superfans. What's Patreon? Well, it's a website and an app that lets fans crowdfund the type of extra content you want. And now More Score has it all on video. You can listen or watch right on the Patreon app. More Score already has the life stories of people you know, like Kenny and Robert from Score the Podcast, as well as bonus features, hangouts, and yes, original interviews, like Carlos Rafael Rivera from The Queen's Gambit on Netflix. Did you know he had to throw out his score and start fresh? More Score gives you insight into the film score world, and it's a beautiful addition to those of you who just can't wait for another episode of Score the Podcast. Best of all, More Score is year-round. No more off-season. Go to patreon.com slash morescore or download the Patreon app and search More Score. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is Blake Neely. You're listening to Score the Podcast, and let's go back to the show. Welcome back to Score the Podcast, presented by Spitfire Audio. This is going to be a really fun show. I'm really excited about our guest today. The list of films, the list of directors he's worked with, the, the list of TV shows, I mean, he's done it all. He's an Emmy and Grammy-winning composer, Mark Isham, joining the show today. Mark, it's good to see you. Thanks for coming on. How you doing? I'm doing very well. I love that applause. Thank you. That's actually <laughs> our studio audience. Um, they've all been double vaxxed. Fantastic. Yeah, and uh, and they're unpaid. It's, it's much like the Tonight Show. You just it's hard ticket to get. It's but. volunteer. Um, of course, this is a special special opportunity for me to say hello to my great friend mark isham who we have i actually looked mark i've had a little mark isham festival i have to confess <laughs> over the last week listening oh yeah listening to and listening back to uh a lot of work that you've done and finding out that you and i have done a surprising number of films together i i was really yeah. surprised to see um the just the titles that that we've worked on in fact some of them i completely forgot though i can't help but say that the very first film score that i completed <laughs> at fox i had already started um in october 94 but i in, either inherited or right at the beginning michael apted the late uh -huh. hired yes. for nell Yes, yes, yes. And um, you don't know what a career maker that was for me because it was sort of the first score that I presided over as the 
guy at Fox, and you were nominated for a Golden Globe. And I was. People looked at me like, "Wow, man, your very first score." You're, yeah. <laughs> of course, I I said thank you. You know, it wouldn't have happened without me. When in fact, yeah. it was entirely you writing a beautiful score for that Jodie Foster movie. Oh well, thank you. Yeah, I mean, it it, it was an interesting project because Michael was the director, but Jodie was the star and producer. Uh, she had a tremendous amount of input. It was almost a. Um, it was very much a the score was the three of us sitting in a room and just and working it out and uh yeah a wonderful project two two of the sweetest most intelligent people and i've worked with and just a, both of them had such a great sense of of camaraderie and a, how to work together as a team and you know those are those are the valuable things in this business you know do you remember people. young robert at that point what was he like uh <laughs> Did well, you know he was a little green in that department? I'm well, he curious. had he had blonde wavy hair, and <laughs> oh, I just had hair. Yeah, you know. <laughs> confusing him for Zach Morris walking in. Yeah, I can't remember Mark though. I will deny it, even though it's being recorded. Did we record on the Fox stage, and was it all acoustic at that moment, or had we started down the treacherous path that then became? The only path, which is a combination of electronics and an orchestra. Do you remember the Nell score? In I remember. Way? I remember it quite well, actually. Um, there were a bunch of indigenous instruments of which I tried to get the real things and discovered yep. that um, it was going to be much easier and sound almost as good to use high quality samples for some of them. So. Even though the score sounds 100% organic and acoustic and designed to sound that way, um, there are some sampled elements in it. And I was experimenting with doing interesting things like um, taking the harp part and doubling it with a Prophet 5 buried in mm. reverb as a sort of a sh as a over uh, sh over exaggerated ambient echo type of effect on certain instruments. So. There are a, quite a number of little electronic tricks in that score, but the overall impact is a purely analog, organic, uh, warm, warm score. Yeah, and it was, I mean, I listened to some of it back, and I couldn't remember if it was all acoustic, because it sounded all acoustic, but yeah, these days, you never know. But I just, before we get into some deep background, I'll just remind you, I, I made a little list here. In Her Shoes. Ah, yes, I remember that. We did that <laughs> one. Um, another great director who is no longer with us. Yep. Um, Men of Honor, of course, with George Tillman. and George, mm, huh? And, Cuba Gooding uh, and Bob De Niro, yeah. Yep, exactly right. And um, also a really, really wonderful picture that I have a memory of a funny a musical a moment but secret life of bees yep i remember that one quite well and i remember um the producer uh, tell them i'm not here mark just if you yep. would let them know that i'm i'm busy doing a mark isham podcast <laughs> um they they'll find me anywhere these yes. days <laughs> um i remember the producer of that film coming to me and gina the director and saying that she thought the cello piece which was performed 
in air quotes on screen by Alicia mm -hmm. Keys, which was a beautiful Bach solo cello piece. She said, what is that music? I said, well, that's like you know, a Bach prelude. It's mm -hmm. legendary and it's so perfect for her character. And the, the studio executive said, it's, it's too sad. <laughs> and I thought, um, I'm going to hand this over to Mark Isham and the director <laughs> to handle because I, I need to gather myself in the hallway when studio executives say those things. But you've obviously been through a You guys probably have a million of those types of stories with those types of notes. Uh, Mark, one of the things we do on this show is obviously we want to talk about some of your scores, but we like to introduce the audience to who Mark Isham is as well um, because this is the platform to do so. and. We know that uh, your mom was a violinist, is that right? Was your dad a musician too? My dad was an amateur uh, musician. He was a violist. Uh, they met playing string quartets in college. And um, and then I think my mom Where? would help my... Uh, Pomona, Pomona College. Nice. So and you're SoCal through and through? Well, no. Then they, they uh, got married and moved to New York. So I'm a New Yorker. Got it. So your parents are Californians and you're a New Yorker. Yeah. And so I grew up in New York City and then and then my father they they separated. My father came back to California and then my mother followed and then they had another decade of marriage before they finally divorced. Hmm. Hmm. And so did you uh, obviously you're around music probably your whole life as a kid. Um did you kind of just fall into that or did you rebel? Do you have any, is, sometimes it's the, it's either the, you went right into it or you said, there's no way I'm doing what you guys do. I'm going to go start a rock band or do something like that. But w what was your path into music and, and did it start classical or? It started very classical. Uh, I just love sitting at the piano and, and, and uh, telling little stories and playing, playing little chord progressions and making pretty notes for the, for the love story and dangerous notes for the the uh the bad guys uh and i was my mother stuck a violin in my hand when i was very young and i i played it and uh somewhat reluctantly i was i would would have made probably a great country fiddler because i was really mm -hmm. fast but i could never vibrato that that thing in the in the you know i could never get that and then one day she took me to an orchestra rehearsal um so i was doing my homework and uh finished it and started wandering around the back of the orchestra and sat near the brass section, and I watched these guys come in, like in the Mahler symphonies, and play that great brass parts in Mahler, and said, I think this is what I want to do. And it, in terms of revolt, you know, the guitar had six strings. That's too close to a violin. But the, but the trumpet, now that's something, you know, the violinists are not fond of the brass section. <laughs> so this, this was the biggest, the biggest revolt I could, I could imagine. So I had to play violin and trumpet for about a year and a half before my mom saw that, you know, he's actually a pretty good trumpet player. I think we'll let him carry on in that way. There must have been a migration, though, from orchestral trumpet to suddenly discovering, I imagine, Miles Davis or Freddie Hubbard or... It was the very, Navarro. the very first one was actually Nat Adderley, but that wow. led that led to... Um, miles very quickly after that and it was it was you know the product of of the move back from new york to california 
And I was the lonely teenager looking at the radio dial, looking for something to listen to, being lonely in my bedroom. And I came across a jazz station, which I'd never heard living in, in mid-state New York. Wow. Uh, and uh, that was it. It changed my life. What age? And, uh, I would have been a sophomore in high school. So what is that? Uh, 16? Yeah, 16, I think. 16, yeah. yeah. And did you so find... So at that point then... Oh, go ahead, Robert. I was just going to say, did you find like-minded musicians around you and start to put together the Mark Isham Quartet or Quintet and... I did. I did. In high school, even. It turned out there was a really strong uh, jazz program at this... Well, my parents saw this coming, and they found a high school that had a very strong music program. Mm. Oh, and, that's sweet. Uh, yeah. So that was that was good. Uh, in those days, it w wasn't private schools, but they found the public school down the road. Not the one that was in my district, but one that was close enough that I could go to without causing too much of a, uh administrative fluffle <laughs> yeah and i i went there and they had a very strong music program i played in the stage band i started a quintet i played in the orchestra i played in the all-county orchestra i started going into the city in san francisco and and joining um semi-professional uh stage bands and big bands in there and had a pretty pretty strong practical education in music just by doing it did you start to notice a knack for like identifying that you could maybe start writing some of like write a whole piece for other instruments as well. Yep. Started doing that. Um, wrote some stuff for the quintet. And then by the time I, uh, I went to college for about three months, so that was a disaster and I dropped <laughs> out and I've never looked back. <laughs> mm. And around that time I, I started writing. I started putting together little groups of musicians and saying, let's try it. Let's try this. How about we and play was the this? Was the fantasy at that point, I mean, this is wonderful to learn because we've known each other so long and I never knew any of this. And I've always wondered, particularly when someone is a first-class instrumentalist besides being a composer or in addition to, was the fantasy at that point, I'm going to be a recording artist playing trumpet and get a deal with Blue Note or Verve and that's my career path? Absolutely. Um, I, you know, I would see Miles at the, at the Berkeley Jazz Festival playing at the Greek Theater for 7,000 people, and I thought, yeah, I'd like to do that. And then I'm watching the evolution of fusion music and Weather Report and uh, the Mahavishnu Orchestra and Return to Forever, and I said, well, that's even better. <laughs> you know, they're doing two nights at the Greek Theater, <laughs> and, and I love this music even more. And, and so that was my goal, really, which I eventually achieved. I got a fusion jazz deal at, at Columbia Records in the late 70s. Um, mm. Is that before your first film score? Yes. I, I had no ambition to be a film composer whatsoever as a young man. Uh, mm. it, it was a later in life uh, opportunity that I simply took and said, oh, I can... I get paid to to, <laughs> to actually write <laughs> write a lot of music, <laughs> and someone you, will and someone will pay to produce it. This is amazing. <laughs> I think but just, were you a film fan? Because yeah. you was it was it on your radar at all, at all that this is a job? It's we're finding more and more that like now that there's all these film scoring programs and and kids are brought up knowing that this occupation kind of exists. But back in those days was. Was that even, a, were you aware of that as a musician, that this could be a job? I, I was aware slowly, but you're right. There, you know, there was no, this was not offered in college. This was not offered anywhere. I don't, Berkeley School of Music may have 
not even started yet at this point. This is the mid-70s. I don't know when they started, but there certainly was no film programs any in any of these schools. Right. So, um, yeah, it was, you know, I remember going to see Witness and realizing that this was a, a synthetic score and Blade Runner. And, and I was aware of this shift, you know, that, that it wasn't just John Williams, you know, writing all that amazing stuff, uh, but that there's lots of different types of music. And, of course, I was sort of late to the party. There had been a lot of very interesting alternative scores before these scores, but that's, that was actually when I sort of became aware of it. When you, get, when you start transitioning into that film scoring type of thing, as a trumpet player, is that a tough transition? Do you need to learn the piano? Like, how do you... How do you write as a trumpet player uh, as you're sketching it out? It seems like the piano is kind of the go-to instrument. Did you have to have to learn piano? Well, when I became a, a, a fusion fanatic, well, even before that, when I became a jazz fanatic, um, I, I went back to the piano. I, I had stopped taking piano at the age of 10 because I just hated practicing the, the two-part inventions. <laughs> you know, just, I, I didn't see any point to it. But when I started her hearing Herbie Hancock play, uh, you know, Stella by Starlight at, at the Carnegie Hall on, on this Miles Davis record, I went, all right, there's some harmonic language being invented here that I don't understand. I don't know what this is. I need to figure this out. So all of a sudden, I went back to the piano. And I took a few piano lessons from jazz players just so I could start to understand the harmony, understand the voicings, understanding... You know, this isn't just triads here. We're inventing a whole new harmonic language, which is quite honest, quite frankly, in my humble opinion, much more sophisticated than the classical world had gotten. The classical world had just sort of decided that that the noisy stuff was was cool and modern, because we had John Adams or Steve Reich. This hadn't really come back yet. You know, the the new beauty in modern classical music hadn't really surfaced yet. So. Really, the elegant modern harmony was all happening in jazz. Cecil Taylor, Herbie, mm -hmm. you know, Keith Jarrett, these guys were reinventing how do you how you play chords and how you. And so I was drawn to the piano. In my twenties, I actually started practicing piano again. I practiced mm -hmm. three or four hours a day just so I had enough facility to get around and figure out figure out what I wanted to know. And then was there a pivotal moment where someone either heard your album or heard you practicing the piano and said i have a movie i'd like you to write the film score <laughs> well there is and it's a pretty uh interesting little story um i was recording a lot for ecm records a german record label doing a lot of modern jazz and we were mm -hmm. touring touring there you know every every year we'd go and do a month tour there I was in an avant-garde quartet with Art Landy. Anyway, I got to know Manfred Eicher, and he started the New Music label, which was a classical-based label. Well, the bass player in that quartet, Bill Douglas, plays all the Chinese classical instruments, all the flutes. He had a, a, a collection of percussion instruments. And we decided, let's, put, let's do a piece of music for electronics, because I, the other main focal point in my life was I got hooked in by synthesizers. My father brought home a copy of Silver Apples of the Moon, and that was it. I just, I'd been saving up, 
I bought you know, a little ARP synthesizer that I just kept studying and studying that as well. So I had the classical trumpet side, the jazz trumpet side, the uh, awareness of harmony, and I had this love of electronics. And so this is pushing me through my first, you know, professional decades. So we made this album of classical Chinese instruments and electronics. Following, you know, uh, Jean-Michel Jarre was very popular, Tomita was very popular. We said, well, there's a market for this. Hmm. So um, we sent it to Manfred, and he rejected it. So we did the next best thing that you do with a rejection is I took the last 200 bucks out of my savings account. I went down and bought a cassette duplicating machine and a box of cassettes, and I made like 100 copies of this thing and sent it out to everybody I knew. And then I sort of forgot about it. I said, well, that's that chapter. It's out there. I made it. It's out there in the world. Done. Move on. Well, one of those cassettes went to a friend of the bass player, Billy, who was a graphic artist. He had the job of designing a movie poster for this upcoming Disney picture. The director of that picture came to his house to see the test print of the poster, and he was playing that cassette at that meeting, just in the background. The director said, yeah, the poster's fine. I've got tons of notes for you. What's that music? I think that's Wait, he the, was just like listening to it like a pop song just in the background? In the background. That is incredible. The director said, what is that? I think that's the score to this movie. Wow. And that's, that's how I got my first <laughs> job. And what it was, was the movie? The, the movie. I mean, this is, you know, this doesn't happen to very often. It was, a, it was a big budget Disney film. It was Carol Ballard's Never Cry Wolf. That is remarkable um, and fabulous. And also, there's such a huge lesson in that story, which is yeah. as much as any of us plan for things, uh, it's accidents that move us forward. Tell me, when Carol Ballard comes to you and says, will you write the score to this movie, did you say, A, I've never written a movie score, no way, B, absolutely and then run home and try and figure out how to <laughs> I know exactly what I'm doing yeah <laughs> well it, it it he he was a little more cautious than that he traced me down and uh and finally got me to look at the the movie and I said well you know I've never done this before and he said that's that's all right you know um why don't you give it a shot so he set me in a in a little room with an 8 track tape machine I had my Prophet 5 with me because I actually wasn't, I was on tour. I wasn't even living in San Francisco at that point. So I was live, had a suitcase, a Prophet 5, and a trumpet. I took my Prophet 5 out to his 8-track studio. He taught me how to use one of those old-fashioned chems, you know, where the movie goes through the thing. And he put two scenes on a reel, and he taught me how to line the X up and start it. And so I would put an X on the 8-track tape machine and an X on the picture, and I'd push start at the same time. And I wrote two pieces of music, one for each scene. And he came back on Monday and listened to them. And Tuesday morning, he hired me. Wow. First of all, that's an interesting that's moment in the Disney. One of the best stories I've heard. Music <laughs> history. For starting a composer. Because I think a lot of current situations would be a line of executives saying who and no way and we need a guy's done it before so that's fabulous and well that that ha that happened i mean he had already had two scores done by likewise unknown composers but but credible composers they'd done documentaries and documentaries about the 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 wilds of the north yukon territory which is where the movie takes place so 
they had had a leg up on this whole thing, and, and he'd rejected both of these scores. And, um, and supposedly, I heard this later from the producer, that, yes, the studio called him immediately said, you did what? He said, we'll, <laughs> we'll pay for John Williams. We don't care. Finish the film. Get John in there tomorrow. We'll pay for it. And he said, no, I'm going with the kid. <laughs> and did you find out in the, that process, aha, this is me? this is what I love. I'm abandoning the other part of my career to pursue this full time, or this is a one-off. Let's see what happens. And if there's a response to it, it was sort of a mix of the two. I thoroughly enjoyed it. I, I realized, even though I had no idea what I was doing, <laughs> that after four months of very, very hard work, uh, I had achieved a very credible film score. And to this day, I, I'm very proud of that film score. I think it really holds up. Um, four and a half months it, it took. Uh, and Carol had the patience to talk me through it and, and get what he wanted and get me happy with what I was writing for him. I came away from that, still a starving jazz trumpet player, and I went back to Europe because I was working with Van Morrison at the time. I was in his band. And I'd, I'd been having a good run with Van because he was doing a lot of experimental music. We were using a lot of synthesizers. I was doing like duo concerts with Van from time to time. And so I went back expecting to, that it was a one-off because um, I had, I had, it was never done in Hollywood. I, I had no connection to the Hollywood world whatsoever. This is all done in San Francisco. So we're just, we're going to North Beach and having coffee. And, and that's really, <laughs> that's, that's was the whole experience was. I'm sitting in London and Van decides to do an R and B record as his next record, which of course for a trumpet player, you know, is da 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 and I just said, you know what? I've actually just written a film score. Maybe I should look into that because I really don't want to do another decade of da da da. I just I'm done it i've done it like for 15 years now i'm i'm tired of that and so i packed up my bags and i went back and the good news was that i had just gotten my first windham hill record deal mm. and so that record came out um very similar period of time and icm signed the windham hill label for representation for public performance and a young um, agent at ICM saw the roster of the Wyndham Hill artists, of which my name was on, and he said, wait a minute, that's that name I saw on that Carol Ballard film. Who Nobody knows who he is. That's who he is. And he rushed downstairs at the big meeting that ICM was having with all of us and said, can I represent you for a film? And that was it. It was Brian Lauchs, who of course is one of the top agents still in, in Hollywood for film music. That's remarkable, fabulous. All shout out to Brian Laux, who I thought of <laughs> yesterday. Strangely enough, on he's no longer at ICM. Of course, he moved right. to CAA, where he's yep. been for 30 years. Yeah. And what a great call. And it's just a wonderful progression, Mark. And to yeah. think that <laughs> here we are. I mean, last night, uh, I am fully willing to admit that I decided I couldn't do this this morning without watching episode one of The Nevers. Ah. <laughs> and to, Same. <laughs> and to think that, to hear this story this morning, 
and to know that you are now on this really hot new show and it's kind of amazing combination of almost everything you've described i mean first of all um as you told me kenny the first maybe six minutes is all music no dialogue yeah i mean literally tell the story that's a dream right to start start a show like that as a composer composer's dream well and, and then you know as you then after you start you put the first four or five hours into it you say oh this is a bloody nightmare you know <laughs> yes but but then once 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 you get that idea that you know is strong enough to to carry the thing through then it then the dream aspect comes back and it's it's a blast and it's such a good show it's so well written so well conceived it's it's really one of my all-time favorite projects i must say that um I sat there and watched the show. Of course, there's a lot of fantasy and a lot of things I don't understand. And I wasn't sure, is this working? I'm not sure. And I turned to the toughest critic I know, Mrs. Kraft, who, <laughs> who sat and watched with me. I said, well, what do you think? Expecting her to say, she said, I love it. <laughs> is there, and it's, yeah. I guess it's one episode. Uh, they don't load them up, so you can't go. She was ready to binge the entire thing top to bottom she loved it it's women the women are strong yeah. um and we both had to admit and I, I i'm sorry to share this with you that it was so engaging that only occasionally i'd say oh oh wait like i'm supposed to be listening to the music <laughs> but i'm trying to figure out what that girl is doing right now is she uh is she touched right as they say yeah. so um but it was really beautiful and there's some vocal stuff that's remarkable did yeah. they come to you for Mary's vocal on stage in the opera? I'm giving it away, but is that <laughs> something you write? Is that something someone finds? Well, that's um, COVID had a big part to play in, in the timing of this and, and the mm. answer to that question, because that was all done pre-COVID, long before I was hired. And there's a young woman named Amy Doherty who had been tasked with writing that song for the state for the set because it mm -hmm. actually had to be recorded live uh which she did and joss wrote the lyrics and she wrote the music so that was all pre-done mm -hmm. covid shut the whole production down uh six episodes had been shot and then when the industry finally figured out that post-production could continue in covid they realized oh we can actually get this show done and they started, and they said, oh, wait a minute, we don't have a composer. <laughs> so I got brought in really quite late uh, to the point where the schedule was a bit brutal. Um, we did like four and a half hours of music in two months or something. It was, it was a big, big, big job. Um, but the Amy's song is, is what is the backbone of that, that music, and I worked with Clint Bennett, the music editor, to, to put it together in the right, form and to do some rearranging but the the backbone of that music is is amy's i want to get under the hood just a little bit for my own edification of the difference between the technology you used to score the carol ballard film <laughs> which took four and a half months to get <laughs> music to picture and the technology that you used to do four and a half hours in two months yeah uh several decades later do you, just for the fans of this show that want to know, is it, you know, 
are you locking up all kinds of uh, digital audio workstations? Of course, you know, Pro Tools, Ableton, whatever you're using. Wait, Logic. you mean your process isn't the same as it was yeah. the other part <laughs> in that it. first <laughs> film? Or do you still kind of line up <laughs> cues until you find the spotting moment? How, well, well, Robert and I may be the only ones that remember that there was a music business before the personal computer was invented. How true. And <laughs> there tapes, was, you, you there was a rather, tape. there was rather large and prosperous music business before the personal computer was invented. And the, <laughs> and so the news, I didn't know that. <laughs> Uh, so that, you're too young. <laughs> so that those first the first number of scores I did were done um, on on tape, uh, sixteen track tape, eight track tape. Um, eventually, two locked up twenty four track tapes when all the final stuff would be assembled. But I was writing basically in a in a in an environment where tape was the medium. Uh, Never Cry Wolf was all done on a Prophet Five, an eight track tape machine, and a Prophet what was then called the poly sequencer, which was one of the first digital sequencers ever made. Um, I had it modified to do a couple of things that uh, it, the stock ones don't do. But basically, that that was it. Um, I figured out a sync tone on the 8-track tape that would then drive the sequencer. But there's no... Can we... You want to get geeky? Should we Go get geek? We can baby. get okay. geeky. We can get geeky. So there's no address. It's just a sync tone. So you're still flying in when this is going to start. So tempo will will lock, but the start time still has to be done by by hand, or you have to go back to when the sync tone actually turns on as a start point. Uh, because this is pre simpty right? At least I mean, simp. At least you're simp. You're old, dude. I mean, that's <laughs> Simpty has been developed between tape machines, but musical instruments have yet to embrace what Simpty could be for a musical instrument or a musical Amazing. computer. I remember, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, I think I graduated to a to Roland Microcomposer sometime during that period, um, but that's just a, 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 a polyphonic sequencer. So those were those days and and i remember very well when somebody said you know there's this thing called a personal computer and it might have something to do with music someday and um i bought one of the first macintoshes that actually had a music program in it it was called midi paint hmm. and uh so i've grown up with all the t the evolution of all the technology um so today as we look behind me here i have a five computer system um, a large, the, the top of the line one for Logic, because Logic is such a hog and needs all the help it can get. Uh, it's synced uh, direct Ethernet connection to Pro Tools, which is next to it, so they run in tandem all the time. I asked Pro Tools to do all the audio, or most of the audio for presentation, because it's, it's just so hardy and, and unflappable, uh, whereas Logic is a wilting lily in the <laughs> under any sort of stress <laughs> so i would never put logic in a meeting uh and then i have three vienna computers um that stand there with with the library of sounds and they they come through into logic logic does all the writing all the sequencing um 
but all the once I commit to a piece of music, it goes into Pro Tools. All the music editing happens in Pro Tools. All the stems get built in Pro Tools. So if we take anything out of this room onto the scoring stage or to the mixer, it goes in Pro Tools. Well, and if you follow Mark on social media, you've probably seen some of his setup and all the gear. And if you're not following him, you're kind of blowing it because you're kind of <laughs> one of the early adopters of show and tell on Instagram. And it's, I wish more composers did it because it's really fascinating. Um, we're going to take a quick break. And then when we come back, we have a lot to, to get to. This okay. has been such a great conversation already, but uh, we're going to dive into a couple of your scores. Stick around more with Mark Isham when we return. Let me take it from here, Kenny. Kenny just tossed a break. And now I'm going to take it from here and tell you about more score. You've been hearing us talk about it. Some people might be thinking, I just learned what a podcast is. Now I'm supposed to learn what a Patreon is. What is a Patreon? Matt, can you enlighten us a little bit on the idea of Patreon and why more score is existing today? So Patreon is a website hmm. that basically lets us crowdsource or crowdfund shows. So we can go out and produce podcasts that are extra, that aren't, these aren't something that any sponsorship is paying for. This is something that you, the listeners, you, the fans are helping us create. And because of that, we have a direct line of communication with you and we can hear that the things that you think are worth us going out and pursuing, chasing down interviews with people that are interesting. And of course, we'll be bringing you those we have already, uh, really interesting guests that have given us um, pretty amazing insight into things like the Queen's Gambit, uh, Carlos, you know, who turns out was a big fan of our documentary. And that was kind of a cool thing. That was and, sweet. Uh, and then um, Zach and Leo from uh, Cobra Kai, which is, you know, we talk about their path going from interns, getting people, getting us coffee. And uh, <laughs> and then uh, when we visited Chris Beck's studio and then going on to score basically one of the most kind of innovative and, and uh, uh, really kind of outlandish in the best way music uh for anything that is happening right now in cobra kai and um and so we're talking to these people that might not ordinarily be in score the podcast you know we have a fairly short season well that's not an issue anymore because more score is year-round crowdsourced and crowdfunded what i'm wondering is what if you don't like crowds mm, well this is we we're we have an answer for this thank you you don't ever have to come in contact with anyone. Oh, wow. You just, you just can hit play on your device and just... As soon as you said that, to the, five new patrons. I'm telling you, it's a game changer. It's That's a game changer. It's, 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 it is anyway. really cool, though, you guys, because if you haven't joined yet, you haven't seen the layout, go, go on the app. You don't have to sign up to check out the page. Um, you do have to sign up to check out all of the videos and stuff, but you can see the layout, but there's a mailbox that you can message us directly and say, Hey, I have an idea, or maybe you should interview so-and-so. So you're kind of like part of the production team, part of the meeting, you know, you can get, throw around some ideas. And, um, of course there's also some exclusive merch if you join. Um, so at a certain tier, yeah. you get a t-shirt, another tier, you get a t-shirt and a coffee mug, which the, the mugs are so sweet. I don't even have one yet um, because it's exclusive yeah, to like the patrons. Too, the so you actually can't get it anywhere else. Um, it's produced through them and we can't make it outside yeah. of that. Yeah. Um, I want, they must do that on purpose to encourage people. Can't even to get the host. Yeah, anyway, if you support our show and throw a few extra bucks our way, um, then it's part of our thank you to that. And, 
Um, obviously, uh, we appreciate everyone who is helping to make more score possible. We've been so encouraged by the growth of this. It's super exciting. So, uh, check it out. And, um, yeah, we'll, uh, we'll, I think this is the third read that we've done about more score in a yeah, row. I don't wear these clothes. Wearing the same clothes. I don't wear these like every two <laughs> weeks on the day just for, for this read. It's. See, you can kind of blend in a little bit because that's just like a dark colored plain shirt. And Robert, I, maybe you too. But the I, hat, the hat gives it away for Kenny. Yeah. Well, I'll wear a hat next time. I got a couple hundred, so. You just got to switch out You know what I'm missing, like though? A, I think this is a good finale for our three pitches. I'm hoping that included in the merch at some point will be a score baseball. Because, mm. man, I would, I'd wear that. I would wear that everywhere so that people would say where'd you get that cool hat and i'd say so have you ever heard of patreon <laughs> and i could do the whole pitch right there i need my it'll hat be the too. new now everyone's talking about cryptocurrency robert's gonna be like you guys know about patreon that's right patreon <laughs> patreon dad hats man it's the new thing but no seriously we hear everybody and we see your messages when we're out of season when are you coming back? The season was short and we wanted to come up with a way to have a year round season. And this was a way, you know, there's, there's operating costs of the show. We spend a lot of time doing these things uh, to make them sound great and make them sound professional and, and make content that you guys want to hear. Um, so this is a way to do that, but we need your support. And um, we, we think you'll really like what we have to offer. And there's a ton of hours uh, already of content. So you're, you're already behind if you're not uh, on board. So Join now, and you'll get everything that we've already done, plus what's to come, which there's a lot in the hopper. So we'll see you on more score. It's a lot of fun, and uh, and it's just so much fun to have chats with these a lot of these people that are just truly innovating things. Um, very, very cool. Uh, more score on Patreon, patreon.com slash more score, or download the Patreon app and search more score, and we will see you there. Hi, this is Max Richter. You're listening to Score the Podcast. And now let's go back to the show. Welcome back to Score the Podcast presented by Spitfire Audio. We're here with Mark Isham. Uh, Mark, you mentioned that uh, with the Nevers, something like four and a half hours of music or something like that, something crazy. And it got us thinking, because we were talking about this the other day in preparation for the interview, how much TV has changed and how much music is involved in some of these shows that are now so cinematic. I mean, back in the day, TV shows were interstitial music. You'd inject a little music here and get out maybe a theme song and, and that was it. But now, I mean, just in the beginning of, of the first episode of The Nevers, there's like six or seven minutes of straight big film music. Yeah. And I'm wondering, you've, you've worked in TV shows throughout your career how do you describe the change of of tv because it it's become film and in some ways tv is better than film at times because they're able to get into those stories a little bit deeper and and the themes can evolve and grow as a composer how do you describe what's happened with television and the music well it's the evolution that, that we've observed i mean for a while uh, over the last decade or so um I, to be honest with you, I think I think it's it's just the process. You know, the the film process became very difficult for talented directors and writers who wanted to do something different. The budgets 
wouldn't they couldn't get the budget to do it the, you know it, if it wasn't a tent pole they weren't interested and i think the studios sort of hurt themselves by a lot of these this type of philosophy and what it did was that as television got more and more you know hbo and stars and the whole cable and now of course followed by the streaming giants you know they they're hungry for quality entertainment and so all of a sudden you have these tremendous pools of talent moving out of the quote unquote film world into the television world and television of course now is is being mixed in surround and it's home theaters and and a lot of people have 40 inch 50 inch 60 inch and 90 inch screens you know there's more and more home theaters so the quote unquote television is is not just what it was 30 years ago it it is now a very you know a medium where you can do a, probably a lot more experimental things um and and get somebody to actually give you a little bit more money to do them with and i think that's what that's ultimately what's happened here and it's the same for composers i i had a we have a full orchestra on the nevers hmm. and uh recorded and where or is it recorded yeah. covid style it's covid style but it is in in budapest um mm -hmm. we can't afford abbey road but <laughs> but um we do you know have a full real orchestra on the whole thing and i have you know six of the best soloists in the world who are local but is it intimidating to take on a show like that where a, a film is you know 90 minutes you can do the the film probably i would say i would imagine quicker than a show that's 10 to 15 episodes of you know hour-long episodes that's that's a ton of music does that do you sign up for that and knowing man i'm in for a lot of work here when you do a, a series like that well no i know that i'm in for a lot of work but but here's what happened to me i i did television quite a long time ago i did uh, chicago hope i did but what i in those days i did the theme and then i someone else took it over um and about 10 years ago Don Soler at uh, ABC Productions called me up and said, look, um, I want to get you back into television. And she offered me this uh, series called Once Upon a Time, which we were very fortunate to end up going for seven seasons. Mm -hmm. And instead of just writing the, the themes and going away, I said, no, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do this. I'm going to do the show. I'm going to take the whole thing. And so what I'd, I learned what it is to do a television show if you wanted to treat it like a film. Because I said to her, look, I'm going to do this like I do a film. We're going to deliver 5.1 mixes. It's going to be stemmed out. It's going to be with a real orchestra. It's going to be the real thing. Because the show sucks it up. It needs it. It, it absorbs it. it it's, wonder, it's the right choice for this show. And she was so supportive. She found us the money. And all I had to do was figure out the time. And mm -hmm. it, it's a team. It becomes putting together just a great team. Because, yes, you have to work a lot quicker than you normally do in film, but it doesn't mean it still can't be great. So that when the Nevers comes along, and, yes, we're up against a tough schedule, and in a 62-minute in a episode, we have 51 minutes of music. No way. <laughs> That's so crazy. Um, the, That's I, more than a lot of film scores. It's, it is. It is definitely more than a lot of film scores. So, but you, you, you've put together a great team and you gather the team together and say, you know, there'll be bonuses when we get through this, if we're not dead, you know? Yeah. <laughs> I want to ask about the team in that. I looked through some of the scores that I love and a few of them, particularly some recent ones, you've worked with a collaborator and yeah. mm -hmm. I think it's very generous of you. A lot of people might work with collaborators uncredited as we know. But uh, 
I found some really interesting names alongside yours. I mean, I first of all, unabashedly think one of my favorite scores of yours is Judas and the Black Messiah. I oh, just, thank you. I, terrific i wanted to vote for it in every category i just <laughs> i loved the movie and i thought the score was just so badass it oh, was really of that period obviously everything you've told us earlier today about your love of a certain period and certain kinds of music are now it makes sense because you right. kind of there was a like funk sound that was very much of that moment yeah and um you worked with Craig Harris, who I don't know enough about. He's a trombonist, I believe, yeah. Yeah. and a kind of uh, somebody was involved in that scene. Can you just tell us a little how that evolved and how the working situation was because it all came out so great? Oh, well, thank you. Um, yeah, Shaka King is the young director, and mm -hmm. uh, he's known Craig his entire life. Um, Craig, in fact, uh, may even be his uncle but he, mm. he's been known him forever and so craig was the one that basically um gave shaka his music education would take shaka to the symphony when he was young would take him to the sun Ra concert would take him mm. you know to all these various things and and taught him about um the black american musical experience basically and because craig had helped was one of the fathers of it all. He played with Sun Ra from the, in the seventies. He played with a lot of the Chicago guys. He, he's he's a, one of the founders and um, prime components of of that um, avant-garde black jazz mm -hmm. movement. And he's gone on to now compose for ballets and um, special uh, that's that sort of world, the avant-garde world in New York, Brooklyn. So Shaka turned to Craig and said, I think you should compose the music for this film. And Craig said, well, I'd love to, but I'm going to need some help. And hmm. he said, give me a, and Craig thought back and he said, you know, I remember this, hearing this music of this guy, Isham, and really liking it. And so he's, he reached out to me and said, look, I know you have a similar background, but you're also a very highly trained film composer. Would you want to co-score this with me? I said, absolutely. That's really wow. Wonderful. So it was, it was backwards of what I yeah. thought. I thought yeah. you you brought someone in, but he brought you in. He brought me in. Yeah. And did you were you in the same room? You said he was in Brooklyn, or was it all? Well, we had, we we had about a, a six week period before COVID, and uh, in that six weeks, we talked a lot. Um, we initially had Skype calls just because it, it's not a high budget film so that nobody's flying anybody to new york but then once yeah. once once we were going to spot the film yes they flew me to new york and i sat with shaka and craig for a couple of days and we went through the film and we had we really had a tremendously great battle plan i, I still have it <laughs> written out somewhere and two weeks later COVID hit oh and the battle plan included starting to sketch out some ideas and then putting some um really rough but open-ended recording sessions together and starting to collect recordings of improvisational music that would now be developed and edited and start to shape a sound. But you do use it, develop it through the performance process because that's a lot of what that, that all that music of that period is based on the performance, right? And putting great people in a room together and capturing that conversation. 
And of course, that couldn't happen. So we sort of developed this. Shaka came to the table with this tremendous playlist of stuff that he was loving and listening to. And so that started to inform us. And we just, it all had now demos, had to come out of the computer, had to sort of resort to the tried and true things that most composers do anyway. But for this style of music, it's tough. It's really rough. And so almost out of desperation, we started trying other stuff. You know, like I tried taking this Rossan Roland Kirk piece and arranging it for chamber orchestra. Well, that, of course, became one of the lynch, the, the linchpins of the whole score was, was that, that particular motif and that sound. So almost out of just necessity and frustration, <laughs> a lot of the ideas of the score came, came out. I think it's That's a really so wonderful continuity also with your yeah. jazz encyclopedic jazz background. Oh, well, thank I'm you. I'm not sure a lot of composers would understand Sun Ra, Rasan, Roland Kirk, how that information in your head comes forward to score this movie about the Black yeah. Panthers. But what's really remarkable is the sound of the score. And one of the things that excited me so much was feels live feels like cats in a room <laughs> playing and like it just had that feeling of yeah. it had feeling it yeah. had a real feeling that matched the picture and i just dug it another collaboration is for little fires everywhere i'm not yeah. sure how much isabella summers was involved but she's in florence in the machine yeah she's the machine she is the machine. <laughs> she is the and machine. There's again, no question when, about that either. She is the machine. When you're working with people that haven't done film scores, is it inspiring? Is it frustrating? Well, has she done a film score? Uh, no. No, she'd written she one has piece. now, I guess. Uh, she's written some television, yeah, and she's starting to write more. She's actually done, got a show underway on her own right now. Hmm. Um, yeah, Issa is, 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 is fantastic. She's... You know, she is Isa. She's the machine. She's, you know, put a Pro Tools in a collection of drum samples. I've never seen anybody like this before. <laughs> she's amazing. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I think in, in answer to your question, it's it's very inspiring. And at times it's frustrating because you, you have to try to figure out this flow, right? And you have to give these people that have never done this, you have to give them a crash course in just how to get, how to work smoothly in this medium, you know, how, record the start time. <laughs> you know? How did she come on board though? Did, were you a fan of the band or was this a similar situation with uh, Judas? It was a similar situation. Um, Little Fires Everywhere was completely a woman driven show. A woman wrote the novel, was adapted. It was, uh, uh, you know, it was, Reese that was, that was, that was part of the whole. Yeah premise of making this we're going to this is a woman's story it's it's written by women it's it's produced by women it's starring women it's how, how we want to take this as far out as we can let's find a woman to score this um and mary ramos the music supervisor said i think is would be great and don solaire again <laughs> this was for abc production said is would be great but we better put somebody by our side who knows what what they're doing and my name came up it's just wonderful, and uh, it's also kind of a testament to how, look at where you're being called to, M match with Craig Harris, match with 
Isabel Summers. Um, yeah. Very different musicians. Yeah. But uh, if you'd like to take a moment now during the podcast to pat yourself on the back, we will wait <laughs> because you. Well, they're going to look back at you when they're big films, film composing stars, and and that that's going to be a you know their their style was probably derived off of what you taught them. I mean, that's a big teaching moment. Actually, for they're going to if it's really Hollywood, they're going to look back at you and say, "Mark, who." You know, it's, uh, <laughs> that's usually look, happens. look, look! I, 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 I didn't go to school for this. So everything I've learned, I've learned through the grace and and um, sharing of from others. You know, if Carol Ballard hadn't been willing to come in every day at the end of the day and listen to my day's work and say, "This is good, this is bad, this works, this doesn't, and this is why," I, I wouldn't be here today. And if the two music editors on that show hadn't helped me through and taught me about the, where the start time goes. I mean, I've had tremendous amount of help from a lot of people. And so it's the least I can do is, is to embrace others and, and help them understand this world. Paying it's, it, it forward. Yeah, it, it's a big, there's a lot of technology in this, in this particular um, profession. And it, it, and it can get in the way of the creativity sometimes. And so... I, what I just try and do for myself and for anybody else is just let's let's get a simple but very concrete understanding of what we have to know and forget what we don't have to know and there's just let's write some good music. How important is it for you to keep learning? Are you still learning? Do you think at this point or is it just round and round we go or do you make a point to challenge yourself and try something new on a project still to this day? I think that's why I, I still love doing this is that every project opens the door to learning something new uh there's something yeah something to be explored something you know i took it upon myself to to bring my string writing up to the next level on the nevers i saw this was an opportunity to mm. to write for um you know some soloists and just say all right in the time i have now i don't have a lot of time to sweat over this is this my is this my violin concerto or not <laughs> <laughs> I have a yeah. day and a, a day and a half to maybe <laughs> make this a better violin part, but that I try and give myself a challenge in every project. I'm going to learn something more about this. You know, do you ever worry about? And this is a self-serving question. Do you ever worry about not making that mark, or as they say, failing to achieve what you set out to? Uh I don't worry about it. No, I I, I know what it takes. You know, I know that uh, if it means I, I don't spend the weekend with the family by the pool, then all right. You know, I'll go out and sit with them for a half hour, but then I have to come back to work to get it right. You know, it's such a great attitude. I think I think so many are nervous about taking adventurous steps because it does risk in some ways the possibility that, oh, you wiped out completely instead of. Well, I'm learning along the way, and I think that's what makes great artists, great composers, is they embrace that risk. Yeah, and, I, I, and, I still feel I feel that, and I try to do that as much as I can. One thing I wanted to ask you about, and it, it didn't happen yesterday, so I feel confident asking you about it at this stage, but one of the real things about this industry is that at some point you may get replaced. You may have somebody say this isn't really the vibe we're going for. Let's go with someone else. And a lot of people at the top of their game in, in any industry often live with like a chip on their shoulder when something like that happens. 
in, I think it was 95, you were replaced on Waterworld. And I'm just wondering for you in that period, what was that like for you? And how does that shape you moving forward? Just getting that feeling of, you know, this time I didn't hit the mark, but I still got to move forward and and go at this. Or you might have hit the mark, but (laughs) forces... Right. The, yeah. The, obviously, the movie wasn't a big success. Well, the movie anyway, tanked, but. and they. Well, I, <laughs> I know that a lot of the reason was they said we should have stuck with Mark. But I'd like to hear your. Well, you know that's an interesting question. I I've I think I've been fired five times, out of a hundred. Forget the television. Um, out of a hundred and eleven movies, I think at this point. So that's not wow. a that's not a bad track record. Hmm. Uh, and I haven't been fired in a long time because the last time I was fired I said well that's it I need to know why All right and I just I realized that I I could go back and I said well it's his fault and it's her fault and it's my agent's fault no 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 that's not going to solve anything because it's always up to the individual to know where they are in the environment they're in where they're standing what they're standing is what if they're exchanging what is needed and wanted by the people that they're working for and to know at the right time if things are going bad so that it's my responsibility to know long before they even consider replacing me that something's not working and to fix it and that's my responsibility so once i really had that cognition you know and realized that then it just it doesn't happen you know it's just uh, the last time someone tried to do it i just called them up (laughs) and said (laughs) and said look you know it's not to your advantage at this point because i've now scored this picture twice for you (laughs) and you've changed your mind and now i know what you don't want twice so anyone else that comes in is going to have to go through that you know now i really know what you want and you and the director's got a much clearer idea of what they want let me just do this and finish it correctly and i did Waterworld was different it was different than me just not doing my job i was actually doing my job and the director loved what i was doing and it turns out that the star and the producer didn't like what the director was doing and the director got fired and i tried to convince the star and the producer one and the same person um, that I was should keep going, and he just he'd never worked with me before, and he just said, "Look, I just want to work with someone I've worked with before." So there was no, I didn't get it right. There was a lot of people not getting it right, way above me <laughs> on the totem pole, and that's one situation that I really don't know if I could have done anything to have averted that one. That's, that's such, a unique that's a unique one. Yeah, yeah, it's such wisdom too that um I really like the fact that you said, you know, getting aware early on. Yeah, it's a hard one lesson, you know, but I've had such bizarre things as you know, the director's girlfriend is actually calling the shots, you know, cuz the director's so nervous that they go home and and say what do you think baby you know listen to this and and she she had an opinion and that was what was running <laughs> how good i was doing 
know? <laughs> and so you have to sort of be aware of of the dynamic of a group. It's a group, right? There's even an independent film. There's two or three people, and on a bloody studio picture, Robert, you know better than anyway. You know, you could have five executives out there, all who can weigh in at any time and say yes or no, and several of them may not even have read the script. <laughs> Or seen the film or listened to the score. I've actually yeah. had a composer fired by an executive who didn't like his other scores and never heard what he was writing for that particular film. Just said, he's the wrong <laughs> yeah. guy. I said, but no. the music he's doing yeah. is fabulous. No, we got to replace him. And I like the girlfriend analogy because the end title song of one of the biggest movies I've ever worked on is the result of the director's 13-year-old daughter liking a particular artist. Avatar. Excuse me. Everyone around said, that's a terrible idea. And guess who won? The 13-year-old. But Mark, it's just wonderful to hear this. I feel like we could go for a very long time because your list of credits is so interesting. We never got to some of my favorites, like Crash, of course. And oh. a river runs through it, which I influenced me a lot. Uh, yeah, we need a round two on this, Mark. And, oh, anytime, uh, okay. anytime. This is really fun. But we appreciate your time. And Before we go, uh, we yeah. do want to ask. We we've yeah. been asking everyone this because it's becoming such a thing. Is there a Mark Isham concert coming? Is there yes. anything where we can see your music <laughs> live? Is that in the plans? You have so many great pieces. Well, it is. It is in the plan. the 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 question is. What is it and how can it be at least break evenly performed, <laughs> if you know what I mean? How, how can I make a concert and not lose a ton of money? Um, because if you do an orchestral concert, you, it, it costs a lot of money to put, to put up to make it. And, and therefore, how do you market it? What do you play? Where do you play? Um, I'm more inclined just to be on the sort of the avant-garde side and go to some you know, great place in, in Echo Park or something and, and do a, a show with projection and the Buchla synthesizer and electric trumpet, which I've actually was working on during COVID. Um, and I have several projects sort of on an outline form along much more along that line, but film music remixes could come into that sort of thing. Uh, Europe obviously is a better shot at doing orchestral concerts because i think there's a lot more support for those sorts of things which i've done in the past and i'm looking forward to looking into again it's something oh, to look forward exciting. to for all of us yeah. and uh let's just say a little news break mark isham live in paris ah. 2022 be there wouldn't that be cool man that would be the best it would be so cool and you playing trumpet and kind of sitting out at some cool paris nightclub just grooving with you yeah let's do it i'm looking forward to it a reminder to our listeners before we go uh you can follow us there's a number of ways instagram at score movie twitter at score the podcast facebook score a film music documentary don't forget to sign up for more score on Patreon. Tons of extra exclusive interviews you won't get anywhere else uh, and exclusive merch too. And stick around after the show today. We're going to play a clip from Spitfire Audio so you can hear some of the different sounds to elevate your music. Take it away, Robert. Hey, we are happy as can be to have a minute with our great friend Mark Isham. 
I suggest to all of you listening, check out the Nevers just <laughs> yeah. to hear the fresh sounds that are coming out of a composer that has been in every style that I can imagine and is still knocking it out of the park. So park rhymes with Mark, which rhymes <laughs> almost with thank you. Uh, Not thank close, you. <laughs> but thank you. You are very welcome, and anytime a part two is uh, is on the books, I'm here. We'll do it. All right. Thanks, Mark. Thank Thanks, you, guys. Hey, SCORE listeners, we are so grateful for the support of Spitfire Audio. They collaborate with people like Hans Zimmer and the Bernard Herman Estate to build sample libraries that elevate your music. You're about to hear a musical demo of what that sounds like with the Eric Whitaker Choir Package. Yeah, and you know, one of the coolest things is, as an exclusive to SCORE listeners, Spitfire offers... They do? As an exclusive to SCORE listeners, <laughs> Spitfire Audio is offering 25% off your first order. Let's do this whole thing again. No, just Go do again. it. My, You sure? Yeah. Okay. Do you know what Spitfire Audio is offering? 25% off your first order using the promo code SCORE2021. See, in this case, you just told them three different times, so Spitfire's going to love that. Yep. Uh, so yeah, go to SpitfireAudio.com, use SCORE2021, that promo code, save 25%. Now check out this demo cue from the Eric Whitaker Choir Package. Oh, that was very nice. That wasn't it. Wow. It Did this you sing? Now. No, no. Are you part of the it. choir? This is it. No, that wasn't it. Here we go. Okay.
Again, SCORE2021 is the promo code. Did you want to sing something? Anyone want to try to compete Carol? with the Eric Whitaker package? Eric Whitaker. Hey, Eric Whitaker. Hey, I'm in a choir. You're in a choir. We are going to light your fire. Good. Wow. That, I think we better get out before. What's up with you the know, Robert Kraft package? We got to work. Ben, we're coming for you. The Robert the, Kraft the package. Robert Kraft there is, singing package. Man, the, the TV premium. theme song singing package. I mean, I remember, was it Stein and Dixon? You tried to sing the Stranger Things song. Stranger Things. I can't remember what it was, but Stranger Things. Hey, <laughs> hey, now. Oh, uh, well, we got to get out of here. We will see you in a couple of weeks. Go use the promo code. Get yourself a little uh, package Love. of sounds.